0: Welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. I'm your host, Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's show, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes and subscribe, or get in touch with me using email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. On with the show. Hello there, history fans. What a busy time it's been since the Christmas special. There's been a lot going on. So today, we are back with our main narrative episode and we're going to start out with an update and some community news before we go on to look at Queen Victoria's very early childhood, her father's death and, of course, the infamous John Conroy. First up, in a bit of news, The Age of Victoria was amongst the nominees for the Backstory Prize, set up by the Backstory Radio Organisation. The prize is for excellence in public history outside academia. I'm totally thrilled to have been nominated. Some amazing books, films and documentaries and exhibitions were also nominated, along with the excellent Age of Jackson podcast the History Chicks, and many more. The eventual winner was the National Memorial for Peace and Justice from the Equal Justice Initiative, which has an incredible monument, well worth looking at. I've had an incredibly generous review and donation from a listener who wants to remain anonymous. You know who you are, so thank you. This listener said that they really enjoyed Mount Tambora and wondered if the show would be doing anything about Dartmoor at some point. The answer is yes, I would love to. Dartmoor was a place of significance and myth for the Victorians. So I will see what I can do. I had a lovely review from Jenny at the Australian History Podcast, who said, quote, Loving this series, especially enjoyed the episodes on the effects of the Tambora eruption. All those consequences around the world, and that far away, force of nature. Great work, Chris. Engaging, listening as always. End quote. I'm really delighted to have this review. I'm a big fan of Jenny's show. Her retelling of the Ned Kelly story is gripping. I'm sure a lot of listeners will love it, and I've mentioned her show before. So, if you haven't given it a try yet, now's your time. Listener, Curry is good 98, gave me a lovely five-star review, and said quote, "I seriously wish you had your own YouTube channel because it's so addicting. I come home from school just craving for more knowledge."." End quote. Well, first, I'm always delighted when this show sparks a thirst for more knowledge. My daughter would love me to have a YouTube channel, but I don't think I can manage the time commitment at the moment." Still, who knows? Also, curry is indeed good. It is food heaven. And I should really do a mini-sode on the Victorians and curry at some stage soon. Quite a few listeners have said how much they enjoyed the Christmas special and the ghost story. Thank you. It was good fun to make. One listener commented that she just wished the girl in the story had a bit more gumption. I know what you mean, and I do agree, and that to modern storytelling tastes and listening tastes, she was frustratingly passive. I think to the Victorians, though, it just wasn't that they expected women in stories to be more passive than we expect today, although quite often they did, but I think stories, especially the ghost stories, aimed at the kind of unkind fate model we see in Greek tragedies. The heroine in our Christmas story loses what to the Victorians was the essence of womanhood, her youth, her looks, and her social standing. Moreover, she loses it in one of those grimly inexorable marches towards an unkind fate. There was a pretty common motif, her flashes of prescience, hints that she spurns chances to avoid her fate, but those chances were themselves illusory. You can find this kind of inevitable doom in a lot of art and journalism of the period, especially the man-against-nature narratives that the newspapers loved. It is also a nice counterexample to Charles Dickens's Scrooge, who is given a choice, so perhaps the two stories are part of a free will versus fate tension that runs through Victorian literature. I think that is this is an area we should explore more and see if my little theory holds out. Also, speaking of the Christmas episode, listener Michel noticed that I mistakenly said President Jackson when I talked about the post-Civil War pardon, when I should have said President Johnson. Sorry about that, everyone. Finally, a listener from Hungary has given the show a five-star review on iTunes, saying, I've enjoyed this podcast very much, and I look forward to each new episode eagerly. The presenter has done a great deal of research and presents each event meticulously. I'm particularly grateful for the attention to telling human stories, especially to remind us that history isn't just about the names in history books but about all classes and races. We are going very slowly through time. Queen Victoria herself has only just been born. But the Minisodes introduce all sorts of fascinating tidbits from all around the Victorian Empire, from Victorian ice cream to how Victorians celebrated New Year's. I hope to keep enjoying this podcast for many years to come. We have a long way to go, end quote. Which is a really lovely review, but also leads us neatly to the show today, because Queen Victoria is here now in the show. And so we will be covering her in quite a bit of depth for the next three or four episodes. I'd like us to get to her coronation before we move on to other topics. That way we can move around as the whim takes us, safe in the knowledge that Queen Victoria is on the throne. And don't worry, I've got some ideas for minisodes too. Covering Victoria herself, a bit less people-centric than a lot of our shows, she was an aristocrat of the top draw, as they might have said. Even if she had never been queen, she would have lived a life very different from the vast bulk of the population. One of perhaps the most privileged lives in the world at that time. In our last... Narratives show Victoria had been born safely and her mother had survived the birth. She had even been given a name, despite the farce of a christenings. But the family remained poor. There was no way the Kent family would get their public allowances increased. So the Duke of Kent decided to take all of them to Sidmouth to rent a cheap seaside house. This was relative poverty, of course. He was absolutely not going to be cutting turf to burn for warmth like the Irish rural peasantry or making a piece of meat stretch out to a week like some English tenant farmers. The Duchess of Kent, Victorie, had a daughter from her previous marriage called Fedora. She was 12 years old but she and Victoria would always be close despite the age gap. There was a governess for Fedora the now famous Louise Lazen, whose name is so closely linked to the young Victoria. Lazen later became a baroness in 1827, as George IV wouldn't have Alexandrina Victoria, surrounded by commoners. John Conroy went with them to Sidmouth, and so did a personal physician, Dr. Wilson. Victoria herself was already a plump baby, who was vaccinated for smallpox. This was crucial as it and future vaccinations meant she would be spared the dreaded disease. The Duke of Kent was fascinated by the swollen size of his wife's breasts during breastfeeding, calling the effect, quote, an office most interesting in nature. End quote. So, yes, he was into his wife, but it is interesting that he was happy to have that recorded and shows how alien breastfeeding was for the upper classes. As I've said before, with Victoria breastfeeding Victoria, the potential conception of another child was delayed, so Toria would have no younger brother to push her out of the line of succession, as things turned out. After a lavish party in Salisbury en route, the group arrived at the cottage in Sidmouth. They were in for a shock. It was a badly insulated house, was a world away from the palaces they were used to, but when we say cottage, it is actually a misnomer. It was a beautiful two-storey dwelling. It started out as a farmhouse, but had been remodelled and rebuilt, and was actually a rather nice country villa. The family wasn't reduced to the kind of poverty most of the population experienced. The house suffered badly, though, from poor insulation, bad design, and inadequate heating, meaning it was freezing cold and drafty. This wasn't a totally crazy trip, though. Sidmouth was supposed to be slightly warmer in winter than many places, and it needed to be, because in January 1820, the temperatures were freezing enough for ice flows to be reported in the Humber estuary. Above all, it was cheap. So the Duke of Kent hoped to save some money. He was disappointed that the house wasn't big enough for all his servants, though. He was extremely fussy about routines, and he even had a servant whose job was to stay awake all night to wake the Duke and light a fire in the dressing room. He had a second servant to bring his coffee and a third to clear it away. I know. You are all thinking that this was the kind of poverty you'd like to give a try. The town of Sidmouth was delighted to have them. Victoria was already a mini-celebrity. An increasingly unhappy Duchess of Kent took long seafront walks and practised her English. The Duke was keen to keep her entertained till they could move to Germany, so he bought her clothes, jewellery, lace, hats and a new piano. And that's at a time when pianos were rare and very expensive. The Duke anxiously pressed people for relief from his debts, which wasn't going to happen. The family decided they would return to Germany in the spring of 1820 to save money and make life easier on the Duchess. Unfortunately, fate was to intervene. The Duke caught a cold, but feeling himself a tough soldier unlike his brothers, he decided to press on. Luckily, at least, he refused medicine from the local pharmacy, a blessing since apparently it contained high levels of mercury and antimony, both of which were toxic. He took long walks along the seafront in the pouring, freezing rain, and Victorie had to stop him swimming in the icy sea. Over the next two days, he rapidly declined and was confined to bed by the 7th of January, 1820. By the 12th of January, he was delirious and vomiting. The Duchess was deeply worried for her husband. It is worth noting that she seemed to love him deeply. Despite the initially arranged nature of the marriage, she tried to get the Royal Physician to attend, but he was busy with the dying King George III. Dr. Wilson didn't speak German, So communication was a struggle. Also, unfortunately for the Duke, the doctor was a great believer in the pillars of pre-modern medicine. Bleeding and leeches. When these didn't work after a week, Dr Wilson decided to switch to cupping. He repeatedly cut the Duke's body and then applied hot cuts over them for hours at a time to force the blood out. Now, this is what... We would today call torture. And frankly, the Duchess was coming to the same conclusion. She instinctively understood it wasn't a good idea to repeatedly make someone lose blood for hours on end. The Duchess was relieved when another royal physician, Dr. Matten, arrived the next day. But much to the Duchess's horror, he decided that another course of bleeding was absolutely just what the doctor ordered. She wrote in her diary, quote, I cannot think it can be good for the patient to lose so much blood when he is already weak. He was terribly exhausted yesterday after all that had been done to him by the cruel doctors, end quote. So the torture continued. It didn't help, and I can only suppose that the surprised doctors informed the Duchess that her husband was in grave danger. I like to imagine that she initially thought they meant from themselves. Still, the royal family were informed. The prince regent heard that his brother was unlikely to live long, and naturally he sent a note, probably because he was eagerly waiting for his father, King George III, to die, so that he could be king at last, classy as always. Leopold roused himself from the continuing grief over his wife and child's death and raced to Sidmouth, bringing the first competent doctor we seem to have met since the episodes on Waterloo, Baron Stockmar. When he examined the Duke, Stockmar, being able to actually practice medicine, rather than just suck up to the aristocracy, quickly realised it was much too late to help now. The Duke managed to gather enough strength to write his will, assisted by Stockmar and Leopold. Despite his declining state, the duke had enough of his wits to appoint his wife guardian of his daughter Victoria, saying, quote, I do nominate, constitute, and appoint my beloved wife, Victorie, Duchess of Kent, to be sole guardian of our dear child, to all intents and for all purposes, whatever. And he put the little he owned in trust for them. That might sound perfectly normal to us, But we need to step back and think about how things were normally done in the early 19th century. Women at this point couldn't own property in the way they can today. And the children were considered the husband's property. Therefore, the normal thing at the time would have been to leave the children to the older brothers. Or probably in this case, the prince regent. Maybe if the prince had sent more than a note, of course. The Duke of Kent also passed John Conroy on to his wife and recommended she rely on him after the Duke died. His last words were to his wife, Do not forget me. He died on Sunday, the 23rd of January, 1820, with Victory holding his hand. She had stayed at his bedside, nursing him for five days straight, rarely sleeping. Everyone could see they had been truly in love after all, and it would have a strong impact on Victoria herself in later life. Things were actually pretty dire now for the little girl Victoria, who was also sick. Her father was dead, leaving little except debts and titles. Her mother could barely speak English, couldn't even afford to leave the cottage, and was about to bury her second husband. The Duchess of Kent was now utterly dependent on her brother Leopold and the dubious charity of the Prince Regent. Frankly, she was in trouble, and in this period, her survival and her children's survival was by no means certain. The whole country was stunned. The Duke was probably regarded as the best of the brothers, avoiding the drunken excesses of the Hanoverians, and he was notoriously tough. People were genuinely shocked he was dead. The Duchess had to go to London, so paid for by Leopold and accompanied by John Conroy, she went to beg Prince Regent for help for somewhere to live with the girl who was apparently in line to the throne, even if distantly. Luckily for the family, the prince was in a great mood, since he was, by the time they met, King George IV. He received begging letters, asking him to take pity on the Duchess of Kent, and he reflected it might make him unpopular to make her homeless before her husband's funeral. Talk about horses bolting and all that. But anyway, still, he was the same man at heart. So naturally, whilst he put her up at Kensington Palace, he told her she would be paying for everything she would actually need in one of the apartments. On the 29th of January, 1820, King George III, the Mad King, had died. I don't want to go off on a tangent about George III. Briefly... All you need to know is he was infamous in America for his actions during the War of Independence and so is unfairly characterised as a tyrant, which he certainly wasn't. He was just highly politically conservative and not good at managing complex diplomacy or economic change just as the colonial situation required a king and government of high ability. Fundamentally he was a fairly decent man mostly interested in farming not hugely intellectual outside agriculture and set on preserving the social hierarchy of the English upper class to ensure the house of Hanover lasted longer and more securely than the house of Stuart. The descent into madness was long and painful. In his final Painful hours, he had a seizure and was talking to the air for 36 hours straight. When he died, the population were fairly sympathetic. Years of madness had made people feel sorry for him. Well, that, his suffering at the hands of the medical profession and the genuine hatred for his son, the Prince Regent. Now George IV, by the grace of God, King of England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, beloved by no one. He quickly set about enjoying his new power. First up in his gun sights was his detested wife. They had hated each other on first sight. When he first saw her, he had nearly fainted and asked his butler for a glass of brandy. He had her name struck out of the royal prayer book. He tried working with Parliament to pay her off to announce her claim to the throne and stay living abroad. When that failed, he asked for her to be investigated for adultery, which was pretty rich coming from him, what with the mistresses and the illegitimate children. This kind of behaviour was something Victoria reacted strongly against when she was queen, deliberately creating a public persona that was different from those of the Georges. She was lucky that Albert was almost naturally inclined away from royal excesses almost too much. King George IV met the Duchess of Kent and took the opportunity to hint to her that since her husband was dead, why not head back to Germany, which she'd always loved? He would keep baby Victoria and raise her, probably pretty grudgingly. He was also keen on reminding her that, strictly speaking, A widow was supposed to be supported by her family, not the relatives of her deceased husband like him. And, hey, had he mentioned Germany and being supported by Prince Leopold yet? His coronation meant that the little girl, Princess Alexandrina Victoria, was now fourth in line to the throne. Prince Leopold, and the soon-to-be-ever-present John Conroy, pressed the Duchess hard to stay in England close to the throne, and power. Let's pause here and consider the Duchess's position. Early 19th century Britain was unashamedly a man's world in terms of official political power and property rights. That's not to say women couldn't exercise significant power and freedom in many other areas. More so, even than in the late Victorian period, But in matters of politics and business, men owned the property and only conducted business with men. The Duchess had to have a male to act as her agent with other men, if nothing else. Don't let this mislead you into thinking women could simply be ordered to obey men. Society was hugely complicated and the way the genders related to each other depended greatly on who they were their social status and their marital status, plus whereabouts in the country they were. Social rank counted for a lot. In terms of nobility, the monarchy and the immediate royal family was at the top. Then came the dukes and duchesses. These are the top non-royal members of nobility. A lot of royals are made dukes or duchesses in their own right. Slightly confusingly, A duke is a title and doesn't come with a specific duchy of territory. There are only two territorial duchies in the United Kingdom, the Duchy of Lancaster and the Duchy of Cornwall. This might sound odd, but it's really to do with money. The current queen is the Duke of Lancaster and gets the money from all the territories and rights that come from it, whilst the Prince of Wales is entitled to the monies from the Duchy of Cornwall. He is also the Prince of Wales, but in Scotland he is the Duke of Rothesay, not the Duke of Cornwall, since that is the proper Scottish title for the heir to the throne. If that sounds really confusing, you can blame Queen Victoria for that. She mandated it to be used for the heir when in Scotland. Dukes and Duchesses, therefore, usually didn't have a dukedom, although the position was slightly different overseas in places like Sicily. Nevertheless, they usually did hold or own land and have retained powers and incomes. They were considered the very top jaw of English society and Scottish, but the Victorians could sometimes be snobbish about some of the Scottish titles, And an Irish title was considered second rate relative to the English or Scottish titles depending on the creation date since they didn't come with a grant of a seat in the House of Lords. But that's only relative to each other in the nobility. A duke of any kind, English, Irish or Scottish, was still immensely powerful. You didn't become one easily outside royalty and if you were one, then you got immense amounts of power. Irish dukes might have ranked behind the English and Scots on the ladder, but they were still up at the very top of Georgian and Victorian society. Clive of India was made an Irish duke, for instance, to allow him the power and prestige of the title, but also to sit in the House of Commons. And what had he done to earn it? Well, he had effectively created the foundation of the British Empire in India. A working-class Victorian might as well have dreamed of eternal youth and had just as much chance of getting it as getting a dukedom. Still, the Empire provided the tiniest ghost of a chance. Lord Curzon became an Irish Duke when he became Governor-General of India, for instance. You can begin to see the enormous gulf that title opened up between nobility and everyone else. The patronage of a senior noble could bring advancement, political power, favors, perhaps special acts of parliament for your business to give you a monopoly, or throw farmers off their land so you could build your railway. In theory, everyone was equal before the law, but in practice it was a different matter entirely. The Duchess of Kent therefore remained in a strange position. As a woman and a foreigner, she was technically firmly on the lower rungs of the hierarchy. But as a Duchess, widow of a Prince of the Blood, and mother to the fourth in line to the throne, well, that moved her into the highest circles of power. And the Duchess of Kent was heavily influenced by John Conroy. He became her personal secretary and controller, essentially giving him control over the household's money. He seems to have decided early on that he and the Duchess could be the puppet masters of Victoria. As she was fourth in line to the throne, it needed only George Fourth to die childless, and for his brothers, the Dukes of York, and Clarence also be childless. Then Victoria would be queen once they both died. Conroy and the Duchess dreamed of the happy day when they would be regents for the little girl and wield royal power. Conroy would then get to have the titles and wealth he craved, perhaps even that Irish dukedom he wanted. For the Duchess' power, influence, and security would flow from control of Victoria. If this is beginning to sound like the beginning of a lot of Disney films, well, you are right. Like it or not, Conroy was a key male power figure in Victoria's life after her father's death, and her mother was firmly on his side. She does come across as a little easily led sometimes, but we will see her actions as we go on, and be in a better position to judge. Since Conroy was such an important figure, let's have a bit of a look at him now. John Conroy was born in Wales on the 21st of October, 1786. He claimed to be descended from the ancient melo family of County Roscombe, and I sincerely apologise to any Irish listeners for my absolutely appalling pronunciation there. Anyway, he was commissioned into the Royal Artillery in 1803. In 1808, he married Elizabeth Fisher, a niece of John Fisher, Bishop of Salisbury, and sometime tutor to Prince Edward, Duke of Kent. Conroy was appointed equerry to the Duke of Kent in 1818, when the Duke married Duchess Victorie. Now you can see here already the importance of family connections in Victorian and Georgian society. And whatever else he was, he was moderately intelligent and very ambitious, with a streak of ruthlessness. Now what this tells us is that he had the proper military background to attend to the nobility, but he wasn't part of the mobility. He was an outsider. Yet despite everything he did to Victoria and the unsympathetic judgment of history, he managed to get his family into the aristocracy. Victoria would come to loathe him intensely with pretty good reasons. But when looking at history, we need to be careful about judging someone based on the perspective of just one person one period of their lives. Sadly, Conroy is only accessible to us through letters, portraits, diaries and other formal records. He died in the era before photography. There is a portrait of him. He looks remarkably good, posed in black army uniform, with red cuffs, a red collar turned up, red sash and sword belt, shoulders dripping, with gold epaulets and chest blazing with ornate stars and other marks of honor, I'm not quite sure how he would have actually earned any of those. Bear in mind, portraits are usually somewhat flattering or even outright deceptive. Still, it accords with descriptions of a tall, good-looking man. It takes a great artist to present the truth of the subject, not merely. Technically good representation, so I don't think we can actually say what he honestly looked like, sadly. The Conroy family kept a hatred of Victoria burning in return after he eventually died. Conroy seemed obsessed with power. Yet there is another interesting angle to him. According to Julia Bird, in her book Victoria the Queen, there is evidence in the Conroy family archive in Balliol that Conroy genuinely believed he was Victoria's equal in status. That seems absurd on the face of it. In Georgian society, he was a man who at most could claim to be an officer and a gentleman. He didn't have a peerage, let alone anything that would put him on Victoria's level. Except in the archives is a journal journal with an entry in code containing the Conroy family secret. Written in December 1868 by Conroy's grandson, it claimed that Conroy's wife, Elizabeth Kent, was secretly the illegitimate child of Victoria's father, the Duke of Kent. That would have made her Victoria's half-sister. Critically, it would have made Conroy himself Victoria's brother in law. For a man with his sense of ambition and self entitlement, that might have been an enormous thing in his mind. As brother in law, he would have been family and therefore at least Victoria's equal. Besides that, if he was family, He probably saw himself as the senior male of the family. If that is the case, then he must have felt that he was not only deserving of power and title, but unfairly being kept from having his due. From his point of view, he had married the daughter of a duke, and was brother-in-law to the heir to the throne, and the eventual queen herself. In the strictly hierarchical world view of the Georgians and early Victorians, that was an enormous thing. This is tricky for me to evaluate, listeners. If you listen to the episode I did on Victorian scandal, you will remember how I cautioned everyone about how difficult it can be to know the inner workings of these kind of scandals. Was it physically possible? Well, there's no reason why not. The dates are fine, and if the Duke of Kent was Victoria's father, there's no reason to suppose he couldn't have had an illegitimate daughter too. The journal entry is by Conroy's grandson, but there's no reason to suppose the entry was a fake, there was no good purpose to faking an entry, and it was written in code rather than being published. So... Given Conroy's behaviour, his enormous sense of entitlement, and his ambition, I can totally accept that Conroy did really believe it. Whether it is actually true is almost besides the point. What mattered is that if Conroy believed it, then it was true enough to influence him. Obsession and a feeling of being overlooked. For what you think you deserve can have a powerful and unhealthy effect on the mind. Even with that factored in, Conroy comes down through history as an unpleasant, vicious bully, determined to seize power and manipulate anyone to get it. Victoria would go on to describe him as a monster, and his influence on Victoria's mother did lasting harm to the relationship between mother and daughter. He was emotionally controlling and borderline physically abusive to Victoria at some points. He undermined her confidence and schemed to seize power from her. There is also evidence of significant financial irregularities around the accounts he administered. I'll tell you more about those in the next episode. He isn't a man who comes across as having any redeeming features. At least the loathed George IV had a keen eye for interior decor and design, and he was also responsible for turning Buckingham House into Buckingham Palace. So he did have some positive impact, and Victoria was a huge beneficiary of his design. Although she and Albert would ruin the elegance of his vision by adding the dreadful main façade. Still, the new balcony Albert insisted on was useful. It's still used to this day, where the royal family appear and wave to us all. Now, whilst we are still dealing with scandal, there is another scandal and theory that is sometimes raised. Was Queen Victoria really Sir John Conroy's daughter, not the Duke of Kent's? If you haven't heard this before, you might want to buckle up because it is a bit convoluted. If it is true, then Queen Victoria technically would have had no right to the throne and was the illegitimate German-Irish daughter of a duchess and junior army officer. Let's be quite clear, this wasn't a view held at the time by society and also Making the claim without evidence at the time, or even with good evidence at the time, would have created a constitutional crisis and been potentially treasonous. And when historians look back, the evidential requirements would be even higher and stricter. The theory was advanced by historian A.N. Wilson and was mainly based on the medical conditions in the family. First. Porphyria was the hereditary condition suffered by her grandfather, George III, but not by Victoria or any of her vast number of descendants. Secondly, a lot of Queen Victoria's descendants had haemophilia, which hadn't appeared in the Hanoverian royal line before. Wilson also added the argument that Conroy was a younger man and was therefore more able... Father, a child than the 50 year old Duke. B- Victoria said that she caught her mother and Conroy in intimate circumstances. That's pretty damning at first glance, but don't forget that language wriggles over time and you need to know the person speaking as well as the cultural circumstances. Victoria was a young girl at a time when there was more formality and distance between the genders of the upper class, especially when unrelated. So to find her mother and John Conroy having a hug and holding hands would be considered an act of intimacy. We also need to remember one of the most frustrating things about studying Victoria. She kept huge numbers of diaries, volumes of correspondence and so on, and some of it was known to be scandalously blunt, or revealing tragically when she died one of her children was given the job putting it all in order for posterity and preservation she ruthlessly burnt a lot of material she considered inappropriate or cast the family or queen in a bad light or was critical of the children or exposed scandals in fairness to her Victoria wrote volumes in her lifetime just the editing time alone would have been a monstrous task, so sorting or leaving out passages was inevitable just to get it done. But this, to a student of the Victorians, is the burning of the Library of Alexander moment. Julie Bird gives the illegitimacy theory a pretty short shrift in her notes on the topic, saying, quote, Some have suggested that because the Duke Edward did not have haemophilia and Victoria was a carrier, he was not her father. But there is no evidence for this, and roughly a third of haemophilia cases are a result of spontaneous mutation. It should be noted that Victoria strongly resembled her father's Hanoverian family. See Stephen Pemberton, the bleeding disease, haemophilia and the inten- unintended consequences of medical progress, End quote. The idea that a man in his fifties wouldn't be as able to father a child as a man in his thirties is a bit thin, to be honest. Male fertility doesn't drop quite as sharply as female fertility with age, so the younger Duchess was the more important focus as far as having children went, and she was clearly very fertile. There's no mention of the Duke being impotent. He already had a long-term mistress and other illegitimate children, of whom Victoria destroyed references when she could. The medical evidence is also not as strong as it might appear. Don't forget, diagnosing medical conditions of historical figures is a very, very difficult thing to do. George III might not have gone mad because of porphyria. And to complicate matters, Some of Victoria's descendants might just have had undiagnosed porphyria as well. The haemophilia point is also not a strong argument. It has a really good chance of developing from that random mutation. But also, as Kathleen Delors mentions, it would have had a devastating impact on Conroy himself. As a male carrier, he would have had symptoms. A military career would have been impossible and his life expectancy would have been very short 1819 was not a good time to suffer from hemophilia he would have died young whereas in fact he lived to the age of 68 a spontaneous mutation in the genes might have been even more likely given the age of the duke of kent at the time of conception that knocks out quite a few of the main things supporting the possibility. The Conroy archives don't mention it as a claim, even in that secret journal. That doesn't mean Conroy and Victoria's mother, the Duchess, couldn't have been lovers after the Duke died. Victoria later retracted the claim she had seen them engaged in intimacy and denied they were lovers. But that is pretty self-serving. I think, then, that even if you take the evidence at its highest, it just doesn't hold up. Wilson himself retracted the claim later on. It is a pretty amazing claim, but it wouldn't suddenly bring down the British monarchy, even if it was true. The house, Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, now the House of Windsor, has been in power long enough to claim legitimacy anyway. What's that hypothetical, listener? What if it was true? who would be the rightful claimant? Okay, since we are indulging historical flights of fancy, if true, the Duke of Cumberland should have got the throne when George IV, William IV, and the Duke of Kent died, along with the Duke of York. The direct line, male line that is, of Hanover, carried on down from him, and his direct descendant in line to claim the British throne today, is Prince Ernest of Hanover, the husband of Princess Caroline of Monaco. The Hanoverian laws of succession didn't allow women to succeed to the Hanoverian throne, so Victoria wasn't a Hanoverian, but the Duke of Cumberland could. So Britain would have retained links to Hanover during the 19th century, with the two crowns unified in the person of the Duke of Cumberland. Think about how different history might have been. Hanover was absorbed by Prussia in the 1860s after it was annexed by Bismarck. Just suppose, though, the king of the United Kingdom was also the king of Hanover. Would Prussia have gone to war with the superpower of the United Kingdom in the 1860s? At that point, Britain was still on the upswing to the heights of imperial power in terms of territory, economics, industry, science, naval reach and raw finance. Going to war with her wasn't something to be done lightly and if she still had a continental foothold like Hanover, well, it could all have been a very different ballgame. If Bismarck hadn't achieved German unification, perhaps the whole of European history would have been very different. Just by being Queen, Victoria affected world events. And that's even if she hadn't done anything. Now, that's as far as I'm going into speculation. So if you want to talk about the Queen Elizabeth being one of the lizard people, etc., please go to the darkest corners of Reddit. Victoria's life and childhood was going to be unusual. Conroy and the Duchess of Kent were determined to use Victoria for their own ends. They decided to institute what would be known as the Kensington System. It was controlling, frequently cruel and often incredibly lonely. It was during this period that Victoria's legendary willpower was forged. Join me next time and learn how our early years unfolded. OK, thanks for listening today. I'm now going to get busy on the next show. Don't forget to take a minute to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with me via email at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com Catch me on Twitter at ageofvictoria or via Facebook if you've got any questions or if you just want to chat. Goodbye, and I bid you adieu until next time.